from the book. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you can turn to page 182. You'll find it, and we'll read that passage in just a moment. A lot of you are probably, most of you I'm sure are probably familiar with Newton's first law of motion, the so-called law of inertia, that states that when an object is set in motion, it will stay in motion until acted on by another force. So if I roll a ball down the center aisle here, it will keep rolling in theory until it hits the, the back door there because the, the back door is a force that's acting against the ball. If we were to open up those doors and open up the other set of outer door, uh, doors there and we roll the ball on down uh, the aisle into the sidewalk, it, it again, theoretically, should go all the way until it hits the curb in the sidewalk. If I have an endless sidewalk or an endless aisle and I roll the ball, that ball will roll forever until something hits it to cause it to stop. We sometimes think about this idea of inertia in a metaphorical sense as well. Have you ever been so preoccupied on a task, maybe it's at work or a project, maybe around your house or maybe even some kind of recreational activity, you are so engrossed in that project or that task, you are so focused, you are motivated, you are uber productive, you're on a roll, so to speak, and nothing can seem to stop you. You kind of have that inner inertia. Something is propelling you to keep going, and it seems like nothing can stop you. The reason I say all this is because I think that word inertia, that metaphor of inertia, would really describe best Israel's situation here before we begin chapter 7, right at the very end of chapter 6. When the book of Joshua began, Israel was encamped on the east side of the Jordan River, opposite the land that God had promised to them. Moses, their leader, had just died. They had been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and God's promises were sounding pretty hollow. But then, almost all of a sudden, God created an inertia among his people. He established Joshua as Israel's new leader. He reconfirmed his ancient promises to his people. He made them to cross the Jordan by his supernatural power. Israel had gone even further to begin to obey the commands that had been neglected during the wilderness years. They circumcised their men and boys and they celebrated the Passover. And most recently in chapter 6, they had won an amazing, astounding victory at Jericho. So by this point, Israel's got some very serious inertia. They're on the move, and God is fulfilling his promises. What can stop them now? And yet when we look at the very first verse of chapter 7, we feel sort of a jolting whiplash. Israel's inertia is met by an inertia-halting force. What stops Israel's inertia? Why does their inertia stop? And maybe even more relevant for us, what can we learn from this incident that will help us maintain the spiritual inertia that God has begun in us? Let's look at our passage, Joshua chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole thing, so again, I encourage you to follow along as I read. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Get up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shevarim and struck them at the descent. And the heart of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up, 
Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the, of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst of Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. The tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord shall take come near, shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath and they took them out of the tent and brought them to joshua and to all the people of israel and they laid them down before the lord and joshua and all israel with him took achan the son of zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought them up to the valley of achor and joshua said why did you bring trouble on us the Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Had a real difficult time this week trying to outline this passage. In fact, telling, going through stories like this, going through narratives, it's very difficult to outline sometimes, so I'm just going to do a very simple outline today. What's the problem and what's the solution? All right? We're going to walk through the text and try to answer those two questions. What's the problem and what's the solution? So first of all, what's the problem? In the previous chapter, God used the Israelite army and utterly destroyed the city of Jericho. But before that attack even had taken place, God had announced the city of Jericho would be devoted to him for destruction. In other words, that city was devoted to him. Now, when God will give these like permission as they go through the rest of their battles, he will give them the opportunity to take spoils of war for themselves. But Jericho is the first fruit of the battles that will take place in Canaan. So Jericho belongs to the Lord. That means everything in that city belongs to the Lord, the Israelites could take nothing for themselves. God also, in that command, because this city is devoted to the Lord, God required that every living thing, every person and animal in the city be killed. There could be no survivors except for Rahab and her family based on a previous agreement that, were, that was made with the spies who had gone to Jericho back in chapter 2. All of the valuable metals, the gold, the silver, the bronze objects, the iron objects, all those things belonged to the Lord, and so they had to be put into the Lord's treasury. And then, after everything had been killed and all, everything that valuable was taken, the entire city was to be burned with fire. Again, just to remind us, the Israelites could take nothing for themselves. Now, once the city was destroyed, we saw at the very end of chapter 6 that God gave a command that Jericho must never be rebuilt again. It must be left desolate as a perpetual reminder to the Israelites of the consequences of what happened there, the consequences for sin. Remember that God 
was setting aside Israel to be the instruments of his judgment against the Canaanites because of the, the egregiousness of their sin. They were sinful people. God was using them to be his agents of his wrath against the Canaanites. And so the reason why God instructs that Jericho never be rebuilt is so that this city would be a perpetual reminder to the Israelites of the consequences of sin. They must never become like the Canaanites, else they become like them. God would bring his wrath upon them. So if Israel broke God's command, there would be serious consequences. In fact, if you go back to chapter 6 for just a moment and look at verse 18, God had given Israel these commands, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, those those things that belong to the Lord, Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So what God is saying there is that Israel spared any life other than Rahab and her family, or they took any spoils of war, God would turn the tables upon Israel. They would become devoted to to destruction, just like the Canaanites in Jericho had been devoted to destruction. But really that verse... 18 in chapter 6 is not just simply a warning, it's a foreshadowing. We now have read chapter 7, so we see that what chapter 6, verse 18 foreshadows is like a prophecy fulfilled in chapter 7. And in verse 1, we see that, that the writer here is previewing and summarizing the story that's going to be told in chapter 7. Look at verse 1, the first part of verse 1. But, it's almost, you, if you ever seen a movie, you've watched the movie, maybe it's a scary movie, things are going along just fine, and all of a sudden you hear that sort of that dun-dun-dun, that, that, that sharp music that it signals something here is about to change in a big way. That's the word but here. But, dun-dun-dun, the people of Israel bo- broke faith in regard to the devoted things. That word broke faith indicates a purposeful, egregious, and willful transgression. It's as if there is treachery or treason taking place. In other words, Israel has committed treason of the highest order. This word broke faith is used in Numbers chapter 5 to speak of a wife's adultery against her husband. And throughout the Old Testament, the word is usually described, usually used to describe willful rebellion against God. When God gave his command to Israel not to take any of the devoted things from Jericho, he was drawing a line in the sand. And Israel, like a defiant toddler, blatantly stepped over that line. Israel had broken faith. She had violated her covenant promise to obey God in all things. And notice here that the people of Israel are to blame. Although Israel is to blame, we see that there's actually one offender, right? Only one person has committed the offense, and that's this guy, Achan, also named in chapter 1, or verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. Achan had taken some of these things that were devoted to the Lord, the things that God had prohibited from any Israelite taking. And although Achan here is the, sort of the single man responsible, he's the one who actually did the, broke the, the law, broke the command, the entire nation bears responsibility. The writer here in, of this book, of this chapter, says that the people of Israel, he can rightly say that the people of Israel broke faith. Achan wasn't doing this alone, though he alone took the devoted things. Israel broke faith. And Israel will be held responsible. And Israel will suffer the consequences for this sin. And this is probably one of the things that we struggle with, both in this passage as well as throughout the rest of the, of the Old Testament, even really for the whole Bible. Because we, as sort of in a Western society, as, as Americans, we value and we celebrate individualism. So it's difficult for us to understand how and why an entire community can bear the consequences and the responsibility for one person's actions. But in God's economy, covenant relationship is a communal thing. It is not an individualistic matter. The obedience of one brings blessing, God's blessing to all. And the disobedience of one brings God's curse to all. 
And this isn't just an Old Testament thing or an Old Covenant thing. This is also at play in the New Covenant. When I enter into my relationship with God through the New Covenant, my relationship is not just Jesus and me. That's how we tend to look at our own personal faith, is it not? We tend to think about it in terms of my own personal faith in Christ. But when I enter into a relationship with God in the New Covenant, it's not Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. Because God calls me into a covenant relationship, not just with himself, but with the rest of the people that he has called to himself. That's why Paul chastises the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 for allowing a man to live in an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. It was not merely bringing ruin upon that man. It was scandalizing and disgracing the entire church. We need to understand this. I know I said this a few weeks ago. But our personal sins do not affect ourselves only. Our personal sins negatively impact the entire church, either by that sin proliferating among the body or by besmirching Christ's reputation in the church or by depriving the rest of the body whatever usefulness that sinning brother or sister would otherwise bring to the body. Now, we can think of some big egregious examples, right? Think about the pastor caught in adultery or the church leader who is guilty of child abuse. Those are easy cases. We can see how one person's sin will impact the rest of the body. But what about the brother not growing in the Lord because of a pornography addiction? Or the sister who withdraws herself from fellowship because she perceives her needs aren't being met? Or the couple whose constant marital problems keep them from modeling godly behavior? These sins might seem private and personal, but when I live in covenant community with the rest of the body, my sins do not simply affect my relationship with God They affect our relationship with God together. When I face temptation and when I fight against sin, it's easy to relent thinking that my sin will only affect me. It'll only burden my life. It'll only create a problem for me. But when we are in that position where we're facing temptation or we're fighting against sin, it might help us to think, how will this sin affect my brothers and sisters In Christ, there is a communal impact to our sins. And we can see from chapter 7 here, this is one of the recurring, it's probably the recurring theme of the chapter, that sin is a serious problem. God does not take Achan's sin and Israel's sin lightly. Notice God's response to Israel's breach of faith and Achan's sin again in verse 1. At the end of verse 1, he says, And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So not only is Israel responsible for Achan's sin, they bear the judgment for Achan's sin. And the anger here, that's not a picture that we want to think about God. We think about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and all of those wonderful benevolent attributes of God that we experience to sort of lift us up and buoy us up. But... This is, as we talked about, was it last week maybe? The wrath of God being an essential attribute to God's character. God is angry because of Israel's sin. And his anger is justified because he is holy and righteous. Because he is God, he gets to set the rules. He defines the covenant. He specifies how Israel must live in relationship with him. Now, Israel does not here obey God as they promised to. They had transgressed that covenant. They had broken faith. And so God is right to burn in anger because Israel has violated his holiness and his righteousness. Of course, we have the benefit of reading verse 1 that not only previews and summarizes what's about to happen, but kind of helps us to look at this passage in the right frame of mind. But here, no one seems to have a clue. And so we see the symptom of Israel's broken faith emerging in verses 2 through 5. No one has any clue of Achan's sin. And that may be a problem in and of itself. Notice in verse 2 that Joshua sends men from Jericho to Ai. Ai was the, the small town about 15 miles to the west of Jericho. 
probably, again, to gather information that he was going to use to prepare some kind of a, a battle strategy. Now, because we don't know for sure, Joshua may simply here be doing what God had called him to do. God had called him to, to lead Israel in taking possession of the land of Canaan. In fact, you go back to chapter 1 for a moment in verse 2. The Lord says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan and all this people into the land that into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their, for, to their fathers to give them. So Joshua here receives this commission, and perhaps he's thinking, okay, the Lord gave us specific instructions for Jericho, but, you know, he's entrusted me for this task, so we're just gonna, we're gonna go forward. We're gonna plan according to the gifts and the abilities that God has given me, the, the call, the charge he's given to me, and we're gonna trust God's sovereignty that He's going to work in those gifts. He's going to work in those, in those plans. He's going to work in that calling to allow us to accomplish what God has set before us. That may be the case. But up to this point in the book of Joshua, every time that Israel takes a step, God has been very gracious to give very specific instructions to Joshua on how they are to proceed. And Joshua does not proceed until specific directions are given to him from the Lord in every situation up to this point. But no directions are recorded in the scriptures about an attack on I. And Joshua does not consult the Lord for instructions before his attack. Something that he's going to be rebuked by the Lord for in chapter, chapter 9 when a similar failing occurs. Now, God may have given those instructions before the battle of Jericho. It may have been sort of a, a long-term battle strategy. We don't know. Scripture is silent on that. But it seems that if Joshua had gone before the Lord after Jericho, before they were to attack Ai, that the Lord would have been able to warn Joshua of what was to take place at Ai because there was sin in the camp. And so all the things that happen at Ai occur because Joshua did not seek the Lord. Joshua sent the spies, the spies go, spy out, return. And because Ai is such a small town, they recommend that Joshua only send a couple thousand troops, two or three thousand troops. It's a small place. Don't trouble the whole fighting men. Just send a contingent and we'll be fine. And so Joshua sends 3,000 men to attack Ai. But instead of easily taking Ai as they expected, they suffer a resounding defeat. The men of Israel retreat and in the process, 36 men are killed as they flee, verses 4 and 5. Now, if we're thinking about this, 36 men in a contingent of of 3,000 troops, that casualty ratio, I'm not a military man, so I don't know, I know every life is important, but it seems to me that that may not be a big deal. In fact, it's only about 1% of the fighting force is lost in the battle against I. And when you consider there were over 600,000 Israelite fighting men, 36 hardly registers on that total. So why are Joshua and the elders of Israel so distraught at this minor setback? We see in verses 6 through 9, they are so distraught. I mean, they could have called it a miscalculation. They could have called it the consequence of war. This is what's going to happen when we fight. They could have called it just a fluke, something just unexpectedly happened as they did not expect but though Joshua and the elders of Israel see this as a serious problem and we also see in verse 5 that fear grips the entire community well why are Joshua and the elders of Israel so distraught about what happens it's not merely in losing the 36 men but it's in what losing those men indicates Not only is this Israel's first defeat in Canaan, not only is this defeat come after such a resounding victory at Jericho, not only are these the first casualties of war, 
But these results are completely contrary to what Joshua and the nation of Israel expected. God, remember in chapter 1, God promised Joshua and Israel complete success. Again, back in chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. And then in verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so also I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore their forefathers to give them. There is no way what happened that what happened at I could be considered a success. It was a disaster. So the defeat at I indicates that something has gone Wrong. Very, very wrong. Joshua and the elders of Israel express their grief in the traditional Old Testament ways of of tearing their clothes and prostrating themselves to the ground and putting dust upon their heads. And the people are gripped with fear. Notice in verse 5 that their fear, it says that the, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. That sounds familiar. It should. Because this is what uh, God, this is how the Canaanites describe their own fear, right? Back in chapter 2 and also chapter 5, the Canaanites were described as being so fearful hearing the reports of God's great power that their hearts melted as water and that there was no spirit left within them. So Israel's defeat here signifies that something seriously is wrong. So Joshua seeks for an explanation. He can't understand why God would allow Israel to experience this kind of defeat. It's as if God has has given his people into the hands of their enemies. This situation is completely reversed than what Joshua or Israel expected and what God promised back in chapter 1. You know, Joshua doesn't even really need to ask the Lord here what's gone wrong. Because back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, God, as part of his commission to Joshua, made this, gave him this exhortation. Joshua 1.7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So the key to success was obedience to God's word. If Israel obeyed God's word, they would have prosperity and good success. But again, if we look at the circumstances that Israel's in, after I, they do not have good success. Judging by their circumstances, they have not prospered. And so what was wrong? Well, just work backwards. They did not have good success. They did not have prosperity. They did not have victory. Therefore, they must have sinned. They must have disobeyed God's commands. And God makes that very clear to Joshua in verses 10 through 12. Notice verse 11. God says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So he uses several words there to describe the what Israel had done wrong, Israel's disobedience. He says that they have sinned. That word sin means to miss the mark. A really good example would be in, in archery, right? I mean, when you're learning archery or shooting bows and arrows, you have a target. And the goal is to hit the arrow in the target, especially in the very center of the target, the bullseye. And so if you practice enough and you're good enough, when you pull the, the arrow back and you shoot it with the bow, if you hit the bullseye, you've hit the target. You've, you've made the mark. You've hit the goal. But if you shoot it like I would do and completely miss the target, you have missed the mark. So God here had set a target for his people. He had told them that the goal was to obey his commands, but they had disobeyed this command about Jericho and thus had missed the mark. Again, this is not only true for Achan and for Israel, but it's true for all of us. We're all just like Achan. We're all just like the Israelites here in chapter 7. God has given us 
his word. He's given us his commands for how we are to live our lives before him. But we missed the mark. The goal that God has set for us, we have woefully fallen short. And so as Paul writes in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. He also says there in verse 11 that Israel has transgressed God's covenant. The word, again, is a word picture here. One that I've used earlier is that of a line drawn in the sand with a command not to step over. So to transgress is to cross the line you're not supposed to step over. Again, God had given Israel his clear commands, but Israel had stepped over that line. They had transgressed the Lord. So the big picture here is that Israel has sinned. They have broken covenant. They have broken faith. They've acted faithlessly with regards to God's commands. Specifically, though, he names in verse 11 that they have taken some of the devoted things from the city of Jericho. Those things that God specified belonged to him and that they were forbidden to take. In verse 11, he says that this constituted stealing. They took what did not belong to them. They took what properly belonged to God and they put them among their own belongings. And he also says that they have lied in verse 11. They lied about these things. They misrepresented the truth. They acted as if they had obeyed God's commands, but they had not. They were bearing false witness to God. And so in verse 11, God lays out for them what they have done, the truth about what they have done. And in verse 12, he lays out what that consequence is. He says, therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among the people. So it was disobedience to God in taking the devoted things that resulted in their defeat at Ai. It wasn't because of a, a, Ai was a bigger city or better military strategy or Israel was deficient in some way militarily. It was because they had disobeyed God. And their disobedience here is setting them up for future defeat. It's stunning what he says here. He says, they turn their back before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. If they continue in this direction, God says that what happened at I is going to be representative of what happens throughout the rest of the land of Canaan. Every place you go, you will be defeated. And what was intended for the Canaanites being devoted to destruction will become your fate. It's a stunning reversal what God says here in verse 12. God had promised Israel victory over the Canaanites, a victory so thorough and so sweeping that they would eradicate all of them. God was going to use his people as a means of judgment against the Canaanites for their sins. Now because of Israel's sin, God will devote them to destruction at the hands of the Canaanites. Just as he had warned them in chapter 6, verse 18, And the Canaanites will be the means that God uses to administer his wrath against Israel. But notice in verse 12 also that God's promise here of Israel's demise is conditional. He says, I will be with you no more unless, unless, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. God will destroy Israel unless they destroy the devoted things that Achan has wrongfully taken. Just as Israel's victory here was predicated on obedience, so also their destruction depends upon repentance. A repentance not merely in their hearts, a repentance not merely in their grief, but a repentance expressed in their actions, destroying the devoted things among you. And so God instructs Joshua as to what to do next. They're to take the entire nation... They are to repent if they're going to be saved. Joshua, God calls Joshua to tell Israel to consecrate themselves. The word consecrate means to sanctify or to make holy, right? Israel was a holy people. They must be a holy people. God had made them to be a holy people at Mount Sinai. If they are going to live in covenant relationship with a holy God, they must be a holy people. They could only live in covenant relationship with God if they themselves were holy. And so God tells Joshua here, Tell the people to sanctify themselves. 
tell them to go back and to look into the law and to do those various things that I command them to do in order to be sanctified, in order to be made holy. They are about to deal with sin in the camp. And so a defiled people must present themselves to God in a holy manner. And then he also tells them what to do with the offender and with the devoted thing that has been taken. We see there in verses 13 through 15 that God prescribes a system where the whole nation would come together. Again, we kind of see here just the, how, just sort of the, the communal nature of this, right? It's not just, I mean, God could have just very easily said, go, it's Achan's fault. Go get him, go get his stuff, and deal with him. He doesn't do that. He brings the whole nation together. Why? Because the entire nation broke faith. The entire nation is responsible. The entire nation is under the curse of destruction. And so the entire nation comes together, and by the divine means of the lot, God uses this means to basically whittle it down to find out the offender. Take the whole nation and select the tribe of Judah, and take the tribe of Judah and finds the clan that Achan belonged to. Take the clan and finds the households that Achan belonged to. Take the households and finds the individual members, the individual families that make up that household. And finally, the lot falls on Achan, and he is exposed. And when he is confronted, Achan confesses everything. Look at verses 20 and 21. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan admits, he makes his confession. And what's interesting is, about his confession, is that the language that he uses is very similar to the the language that Eve uses in the Garden of Eden. Right? Achan saw with his eyes the devoted things. He desired them in his heart and he took them for himself. Achan admits that he has done wrong, and he applies this biblical language to his confession. He doesn't justify himself. He admits that he sinned. He coveted, he says, he desired things for himself that rightly belonged to God, and he took them for himself. What Achan does here is horrific. He not only broke God's commands, But he stole from the Lord, and he lied about it by concealing it from everyone. Achan knew in his heart the evil he had done. He delighted in it, and then he concealed it. And what he does here is very similar to what, again, Eve does in the Garden of Eden, and what we do by nature as sinful people. This is the height of human rebellion. It's very much like Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. desiring in their heart, trying to conceal it from the Lord, covering themselves with clothes of fig leaves. They despised God's command. They rebelled against God's authority. They denied his goodness. And they sought to take his place as the rightful rulers of their lives and of their world. And that's what sin is. Sin is an utter rejection against God. What we need to understand as we read this story is not so much look at it and condemn Achan, although we do need to do that. We need to see ourselves in this story. We, too, are sinners. And our sin is serious business. Sin is no light and innocent matter. It is an offense of the highest order. Because when we are sinning, we are rebelling against God. We are declaring our rebellion against God. We are despising God's commands. We are seeking to invalidate them and create our own. We are rejecting His authority over our lives. We're denying His goodness and thinking that His commands are for our evil and not for our good. We grasp at His throne, seeking to throw Him off so that we can sit upon it ourselves and rule over our own lives and rule over our own world. Sin is serious business. And again, notice where sin begins in Achan's story. It begins with sinful desire. Achan saw the devoted things. 
and he wanted them for himself. They belonged to God, but he coveted them and acted upon that covetous desire. Achan's sin began in his heart. And like a seed planted into the soil, it sprouted and it grew and it bore fruit. Rotten fruit leading to his own destruction. James writes about this. I call it the life cycle of sin in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. And that's exactly what happened to Achan. And that's exactly what will happen to all men. Now that's a big problem. But praise God, there's a solution. And this story is not over, neither here in Joshua or in the rest of the Bible. So let's look at the solution, verses 22 to 26. We see that once Achan makes his confession in verses 20 and 21, he sends messengers to Achan's tent to find the stolen items and to bring them back to Joshua. And then Joshua and the Israelites go to the valley of Achor. They take Achan, his family, his livestock, the stolen goods, and go to this valley of Achor in verse 24. And, of course, we read in verse 26, the valley of Achor gets its name from Achan. You can hear the, the first two syllables. In fact, in First Chronicles, when Achan is named, his name is Achar, very similar to Achor. It, they're built off the same root word, which incidentally means trouble. When Joshua says in verse 25, why did you bring trouble on us? He's basically saying Achan's name. And that should give us a, a clue. If we knew Hebrew, that should have given us a clue back in chapter, uh, or verse seven, uh, sorry, verse one. Why did you bring trouble upon us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. So they take Achan to the valley of Achor and there Joshua and the Israelites administer God's punishment against Achan for his sin. Achan and probably his family and his livestock are stoned to death. They are then burned with the stolen items that were taken from Jericho. And again, I think that's interesting that the, the burning fire here represents the, the anger of God, right? Back in chapter 7, verse 1, we saw that the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And now that anger, that burning anger is given expression in the judgment that comes upon Achan for what he had done. And then after everything is burned, they cover that the remains there with a great heap of stones. And that heap of stones, I think, reminds to some degree about the city of Jericho, right? Because what just happened to Jericho? The Israelites had won a great victory, and it suffered the same fate that we see happens here to, to, to Achan. Everything in the city perished, the remains were burned with fire, and the city sat in a heap of rubble. So just as the Canaanites in Jericho suffered God's wrath for their sins, so also Achan suffered God's wrath for his sins. And just as Jericho was devoted to God for destruction, so also Achan was devoted to God for destruction. Just as God had promised back in chapter 6, verse 18. And those pile of stones would be a perpetual memorial, memorial to the people of Israel. Again, going back to chapter 4, after Israel had crossed over. Remember, Joshua gave instructions to, to 12 men to get those stones out of the river and set up a memorial to remind them of the great work that God had done. Every time they looked at those stones, they could remember God's power and God's deliverance and the fulfillment of God's promise. Well, now there's another pile of stones that they can look at and see. And this time the message will be, what? remember what happened to Achan. Remember the consequence for sin. Remember what could happen to me if I transgressed against the Lord. I can't help as I think about this passage, think about an interesting contrast between Achan and Rahab. Right? She's mentioned in this story, although she doesn't come out prominently. We know that Rahab was a Canaanite. She lived in the city of Jericho. She was not one of God's covenant people. And yet she believed in Israel's God, despite not really knowing much about him, not being part of his people. She had only known about him from the reports of his great power in leading the Israelites out of, the, out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And yet she believed in that basis of that very limited testimony. She believed that this God was the Lord of all the earth and that where she stood before him, she would be, she would perish. She would be crushed under his great power. 
And yet she still aligned herself with God by kindly receiving his spies and helping them to escape. And in the process of doing that, she asked for mercy. She sought mercy. She sought God's salvation. And so when Jericho was defeated and the Canaanites were devoted to destruction, she alone with her family was saved. And she was brought into the covenant community. And she became an Israelite. And she is remembered perpetually because she is one of the foremothers of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And yet Achan was an Israelite. He was a member of the covenant community. But he disbelieved God and he violated God's commands. Despite the fact that he was a member of Israel. Despite the fact that he had personally witnessed God's great power in bringing his people across the Jordan River. Despite the fact that he had been given very clear commands, both in God's special revealed law through Moses and in this specific command that was given. And despite all of that, he willingly rebelled against God's covenant. That rebellion revealed his faithlessness. By taking the devoted things, he was cut off from the covenant, and he perished like the Canaanites of Jericho, whom Israel had devoted for destruction. The destruction of Achan and his family rendered his lineage extinct. What a contrast. Which one are we? Are we Rahab or are we Achan? Achan and his destruction represent what we really are and what we really deserve from God. Like Achan, we are sinners. We are rebels against God's authority. We are rebels against God's commands. We are corrupt to the core. We are sinful in our thoughts and our imaginations. We give expression to our sins as we desire to do them. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I would ask you, I would plead with you to see your need for Christ. I would plead with you to see your need for His salvation. That you would see yourself as you really are. That you would read this story, you'd see yourself in Achan. Because you cannot understand the good news of what Christ has done for you without seeing yourself first as a sinner. Like Achan, not only are we sinners, but we deserve God's wrath. The Psalms say that God burns with indignation against sinners. In fact, what we see here with Achan is what, a picture of what we all deserve. Every human being deserves the fate that Achan himself received. And it is what human beings will receive if they reject Christ. Here, what Achan experiences, though, is Temporal. Happens in a moment of time and it is over. But the scripture tells us that God's wrath is never quenched because of his eternal righteousness, which our sins violate. What a dreadful destiny to think that we might experience his wrath and his judgment forever. Achan got what he deserved. And the Bible says that because the wages of sin is death, Both death in this life and death in the next is what we also deserved. What Achan needed here was a savior. He needed a deliverer. He needed someone to step in who would rescue him from God's wrath, who could, who could pay the penalty of his sins. You see, Achan here pictures for us what we deserve and what will happen to us if we bear our own sins for eternity. But the good news that this story looks forward to is that God did send a savior. An offspring of Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. God sent his own son who took on human flesh, who never sinned, who bore our sins upon the cross, who suffered God's burning wrath that we deserved for our sins. Jesus did this for us by dying on the cross and by rising from the dead. And the scriptures would tell us that if we would repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus and what he has done for us, in his sacrificial death on the cross, then he will save us. And just as this pile of rocks was an enduring witness to the Israelites of God's wrath against sin, the cross and the empty tomb are enduring memorials to us of God's mercy and grace that saves us from our sins, and that gives us eternal life. And so we must look to these memorials to see the enduring witness of God's salvation. If you're not a Christian this morning, 
I would plead with you to consider your life. Consider your situation. See yourself here in Achan's story. And turn to Jesus. Repent of your sins. And trust in Him. And if you're a Christian, what a great reminder we have of the Gospel. We once were a son of disobedience and a child of wrath, just like Achan. But God saved us. God saved us by His mere mercy and grace by sending Christ for us. And how then should we now live? Not by continuing in sin. Of course not. But by walking in the holiness and the consecration that God has provided for us in His Son. Such holiness in our lives gives testimony to the gospel at work in us and reflects God's very character in us. But God's holiness and consecration in us also encourages and edifies the body of Christ as we grow together and fulfill our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. May God grant us a fear of the Lord that inspires us to live not like Achan, but like Rahab, as trophies of grace, who pursue that holy calling that we have in Christ. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this sobering word this morning. We realize that not all is pie in the sky. That even as we read of these great successes in the first few chapters of Joshua, that there is that lurking vestige of sin that remains, that creeps its head. The temptations of the world, the desires of the flesh, a powerful enemy in Satan who would seek to devour us, cause us to live apart from the way you've called us to. I pray, Lord, that I pray that we would not be discouraged by Achan's story, Lord. I pray that we would not be overcome with grief and guilt over our sins, but that we would see that we have a Savior who saves us of such things. But we also have a Savior who sanctifies us and calls us to more and calls us to greater holiness. I pray, Lord, that you would use this passage in our lives to demarcate us as a holy people and to live in that calling you've given to us in Christ, that as you are holy, we also would be holy. May your Spirit be poured out upon us to walk in that way, that we might be evident as trophies of grace in a fallen world, that we might be a... The Gospel brings that we would show its power, that we would adorn it as the jewel that it is, so that others might come and find salvation and not face the fate of Achan. May you bless your people, Father, by your grace and by your holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.